You raised me up like a slain beast on a bloody hook, so that sniggering and not believing foreigners wandered in and wrote in their respectable papers that my incomparable gift had died out, that I had been a poet among poets, but my thirteenth hour had struck. From Shards by Anna Akhmadova. Children gather around, come sit by the cannon fire. Join the conversation Children gather around If written works are your desire Come and sit beside the flame Of the cannon fire Previously on Cannon Fire so while this is all going on, Anna's whole, Akhmatova's whole world, like the rest of Russia, was being thrown into disarray and being thrown. And all of these things that she and so many of her friends had previously been allowed to do were suddenly dangerous. Watch. But Ayn Rand's perspective on communism was very negative. Uh, Akhmatova actually never blamed the common people for the revolution, for the negative outcome of the revolution. And she actually saw the revolution as God's retribution for the indifference shown by the upper classes to the people of Russia. <laughs> and we should mention that Anna Akhmatova's title that we've given her is the Muse of Lament. Because if you've been listening, she has a lot to be lamenting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she has suffered. Western grammar continues to be a white colonial construct. Previous to the revolution, she was insanely popular. She was coming out with poems all the time and people knew who she was. But by 1925, people had assumed she'd stopped writing poetry because she was no longer being published and she was considered irrelevant, actually, uh, because she was not interested in writing about young love anymore. Was it because of depression? It was, no, she was still writing. But no, 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 I know. Right. Oh, it was just, it was censorship. Yeah. She could okay. not pub- be she published. She managed to publish one book under Stalin, and it only lasted about a week. This period of censorship that Akhmatova lived through, she was actively discouraged by the state with uh, violence um, threatened against her and her family to not publish things against the state and I think it shows to her integrity that she was like well then I just won't publish anything at all she did break that censorship for a little bit when she had to uh write poems that she didn't necessarily believe in uh to try and save her son from prison it didn't work he was still kept but there was a promise that Stalin wrote to her about or or let her know about that like if you write propaganda we will give you back your son that's awful it's an awful thing this her son was one of the few people that managed to get like her total love Mm -hmm. um how old was he when he was put in prison he was imprisoned from 1938 till 1956. okay so he was an adult he was an adult yeah yeah but the prisons were 26 like death camps right right no 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 i get that that i get that i was just yeah. No, I was hoping that we weren't about to talk about oh, her, her, son her son as a child being yeah. imprisoned. She actually, one of the impressive things about her, and one of the reasons that I think she was able to write the poetry that she wrote later, is that she was given the option to leave. 
she actually had the ability to leave Russia. Without um, her husband and son, right? No. Really? Oh, before they were imprisoned? Yes. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, while the revolution was going on, people invited her to come to Paris with them. Because a lot of Russian, uh, a lot of Russian artists went to Paris mm-hmm. after the revolution, or during the revolution. That's when Paris became the hub for art that it is today. What? At the beginning, she almost considered it like a betrayal or like a kind of treason to leave Russia. Mm-hmm. Because... Um, she loved it. She loved it. And she continued to love it. That's yeah. actually one of the consistent things is that she always talks about Russia as a place that she loves. She talks about the, the things that target it, the things that make it the battleground for mm-hmm. their ideologies. But Russia itself is something that she adores. It's kind of how I feel about Texas. You know? Same. You know what I mean? Well, no, I was born but, there. Yeah, you were born there, but I lived there <laughs> for 20, there 22 much years. Much longer than I did, um, but yes. Like, just... Yeah, it's the same thing. There's a lot of there's a lot of rampant homophobia and just hatred coming out of the people in a lot of not all of the people obviously. We know this, but a lot of the people in Texas that I just, you know, I don't get here where I am. Are we telling our location? Not yet. No. Okay. Uh <laughs> we won't let you triangulate where we live. Um yeah, no no triangulation. But I don't get here. I'm going to triangulate just a little bit on the East Coast. I feel so much safer here, but I still have just this deep, deep love for Texas and just how beautiful it is. And I'll, I'll wax poetic about the sunsets for hours because they just don't look the same anywhere else. But I would be much happier if they could just, you know, take all the hatred out of Texas and leave the Texas. So, but yeah, that's why I still support Texas's hockey team. So... <laughs> <laughs> It's the same feeling, isn't it, right? Supporting a hockey team and loving your country without, you know. <laughs> anyway, but yeah, I definitely relate to that. And I can I can see why. I can understand why she wouldn't leave. Because I, despite really needing to leave for 22 years, I didn't. Because I just couldn't bring myself to. And I finally did. I think it's... Uh testament to our identities. Um, I'll be honest, I was very ignorant about the complexities of an entire country like Russia two years ago. And it was being friends with Caitlin and having very candid conversations about emotions associated with leaving homeland and with celebrating a culture that isn't propaganda, that I'm able to understand a little bit of the emotion behind Anna Akhmatova's poetry because, um, Caitlin, I know there are a few stories that you've shared with um, your mother's side of the family and and their struggles and their history, but Mm -hmm. it's a very difficult thing, and it's why I don't understand people who are so against refugees. It's a very difficult decision to leave the place that you are from. Mm Mm-hmm. My grandfather, it took his brother, he was Jewish, my grandfather was Jewish, it took his brother being beaten almost to death by, uh, he was in the military, these were his comrades, and not in a communist sense, in a, they are responsible for keeping me alive sense, Mm -hmm. Uh, almost beat him to death because he was Jewish. It took that to get my grandfather to take his his wife and daughters and and properly decide to leave Russia. Um, That's how deep set that kind of love is and you still have family that stayed in russia don't you yes yeah i've never been to russia but i do now that the borders are a lot more loose i've 
my nice. mom's family's come to visit. And mm-hmm. my, my babushka has gone back to Russia a few times. I wanted to bring up in this great conversation, there's a story that I learned when I was doing research on Anna Kamarova that just blows my mind. Caitlin only read one stanza of this poem, um, and it's an elegy, right? An elegy, yeah. Um, called Requiem. Requiem, yes. And it's t- it took years to write. She came up with it during the period of censorship, and it was published as soon as censorship was lifted. Um, she composed it. It's one of the longest poems she ever wrote, and it tells a tale of a woman who is waiting for her loved ones to be let out of prison. And it kind of goes over her experience with that. She memorized it. She wrote lines down on paper, memorized them, burned them, so that there was no evidence that this was happening in her mind. I am a poet. I have written very long poems. I cannot imagine memorizing your own lines and then what she did was she whispered when it was published she whispered it to a friend who quickly took it to a newspaper she didn't speak it she whispered this like 40 something line poem about the heartache and heartbreak and the stress that she had been under as a mother waiting for her son to be let out of uh this uh prison camp and it's heartbreaking and you feel for her. She conveys emotion and, and the translators that we've read have conveyed the emotion, have, have kept the emotion, which is a very uh, impressive skill. But I fell in love with Anna Akhmarova in a week um, after being introduced to her writings. Caitlin had been pressuring me about like, you really should read Anna Akhmarova and kept bringing her up in conversation. And I was like, all right, when we, the episode you know and then i came across her books of poetry and my local library shout out and i like spammed the group (laughs) for like 20 messages at least of just raving about her experience and and the fact that she was like i'm i'm suffering and i love my country i think in that aspect anyone who has struggled against a government that didn't let them in their country, anyone who has uh, been forced to flee, they can absolutely connect with Anna Akhmadova's poetry. Um, and I wanted to, there was one poem in particular that of hers that I really wanted to read in full. It's a short one. She wrote, um, some of her poems are very um, serious and some are uh, poking fun at men. Um, oh, same. She has... Such a wide range, but this one I kind of want embroidered and put up on my wall in a frame because it's so perfect. I did not read Judith Hempsmeyer's um, translation. My translation is the Lynn Coffin translation. This book that um, I found was uh, published in the 80s, um, and Judith's was published in 1990. Yeah, so there's a, a bit of a difference, and I don't think people really understand uh, the differences and intricacies of uh, quality translations, and we didn't want to just provide necessarily one translation. 
we're mentioning Judith Hemschmeyer just because that is what is considered, I guess, the quote-unquote canonical translation of Akhmadova's works. Mm -hmm. um, so the translation I will be reading is uh, from the Los Angeles Review and is translated by Katie Ferris and Ilya Kaminsky. And Very it's cool. from 2017. So this is just showing the difference between a translation from 1980 and a translation from 2017. Awesome. So the poem that we'll be reading is The Last Toast. And it just gave me chills when I read it the first time. I drink to the house already destroyed and my whole life too awful to tell. To the loneliness we together enjoyed, I drink to you as well. To the eyes with deadly cold imbued, to the lips that betrayed me with a lie, to the world for being cruel and rude, to God who didn't save us or try. 1934. I drink to our ruined house, to the evil of my life, to our loneliness together, and I drink to you, to the lying lips that have betrayed us, to the dead cold eyes, to the fact that the world is brutal and coarse, to the fact that God did not save us. So it's the same in terms of topic, but it's really interesting word choice-wise as mm -hmm. a poet myself. And, and that's, the, that's the thing that's different about translation. And I think if you're going to read anything, like don't read every single poem from different, <laughs> but if, if you want to get the sense of like how different things can be, and if you are really interested in a specific poem or in Requiem, then I think it you get a lot out of reading different translations, because with translations, it's as much up to the translator as to how the end result sounds. As I, I had a professor, I don't remember which one, but I had a professor that said that uh, translation was like a poem being written twice. I like that. That's yeah. a very poetic way of saying it. I approve. Um, I got, uh, I only was able to find in my local library a small book of uh, her poetry from, uh, that was translated in the 80s. Um, half of it is filled with stickers of, I really like this poem. She really says something really cool in here. Her poetry is so succinct, so um, sarcastic in some ways. She's just delicious to read. Um, her life, even though like she's suffered, like she has spirit in a way that is very special to encounter because like I don't know if I would be that hopeful or mm -hmm. like it, and it's weird to say hope with um Akhmadova, but I think there definitely was hope that um her country would change in her lifetime to something better. It it is that weird sarcastic hopeful where it's it's almost saying, I dare you to forget me. I dare you to forget what Russia was because I'm not going to let you forget what Russia was and what Russia can be, um, which I really appreciate because I'm that way with my friends. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but before we get there, I think we uh, should mention there's a museum dedicated to her in Russia. Now. Are you serious? Mm -hmm. There is. That's cool. The, uh, the, and the, the really interesting thing about that museum is that it predates the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Ooh, wow. After Stalin, there was something that was called the Great Thaw. Uh, Stalin, Stalin uh, had a few waves under him that were not so great. The most famous is probably Stalin's Terror, which was immediately following the Bolshevik Revolution. But the Great Thaw is what happened between Stalin and the dissolution of the Soviet Union, and most notably with uh, Gorbachev. And it was 
the idea that Russia was thawing out, censorship was becoming less strict. It's also called perestroika, which is when they basically restructured the system following Stalin's rule, and it did become more open, and you did begin to hear more about these people. And uh, for a long time, the museum mostly featured her earlier work, the stuff we were talking about before that was more about young lovers and nice things. Um, but now it is very celebratory of all of her work. And it's really interesting because Russia, and I think we have this problem in America too, Russia has this issue of there's so many different histories that feed into the modern day, it's hard to figure out where you stand because there's still a cult of personality in Russia around Vladimir Lenin and still a group of people that think that communism was the best thing that could have happened to Russia. But there's also people who look back on their history and look back at their childhoods and look back on what they grew up in and go, there has to have been a better way to do this because I shouldn't have been living in a house with three other families in like three rooms of one house waiting in the snow for potatoes because like that sounds like a stereotype <laughs> that sounds like a stereotype because it's been repeated so often but my mom remembers standing in line in ration lines oh my gosh okay he, uh that's actually interesting because my grandmother actually remembers doing that too however the reason that they did it was because here in america during world war ii they were rationing stuff so that the soldiers were well provided. Mm -hmm. Um, and so my grandmother, um, just interesting little bit of history. I was, I stayed with my grandmother before I moved in with Caitlin and she, um, she knows that she, she has dementia and she, she knows that. And so she was kind of trying to show me her history and, and my dad's side of the family's history before, uh, she kind of, you know, just, drifts off which it's it's hard it's hard to say because I'm very close to her but she was showing me a whole bunch of stuff from you know from her childhood and she was showing me her little rations book and she said she showed it to me she said I think I was one year old she was one year old when the war started so she had a rations book but it was like not she didn't need a lot of rations you know and uh it's so funny. She said, she said, look at this. I still have this rations book. I said, well, why do you still have it? Didn't you use it? And she said, no, the war ended right after I got it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so she just kept it. She just, and she has it framed on her wall. She has like little war memorabilia framed because she's just, she's an eccentric decorator. And it, it's very interesting to see, it, you know, that kind of, that history. Um, but it's also, it's, it's sad because, and it's different because she, she, was only one year old when the war started. So she does not remember the war or when the war ended. So she does not remember the war, but she also remembers, you know, the people talking about it kind of more with fondness than with the fear that it, that pervaded. And the, the, the wide difference between that and how people felt in Russia during this time is just mind blowing. Yeah. Um, with regard to the, Museum for those of uh, you listeners who really do want to learn more and read more of her poetry. She wrote seven books when she was. She did, and I'm gonna try and pronounce them all. We're um, gonna pronounce the Russian um, titles because she is Russian, and if you read her in English, it's been translated by somebody. So Anna Akhmadova has seven books: Vietcher, Evening, published in 1912; Shokti which translates to either Rosary or Beads, which was published in 1914. Belaya Staya, 
which is White Flock and was published in 1917. Podorožnik, which is Wayside Grass or Plantain, which was published in 1921. Uh, Anno Domini, 1921, which was published in 1921. Is Šest which translates to from six books, and it was published in 1940. And then Bieg Vimeni, which is The Flight of Time, and is her collected works from 1965. I like that title, The Flight of Time. So basically, she was throwing the finger to the government and saying, like, you can try and censor me, but I'm never going to stop writing. And there's actually, I, I, there's a few poems where she, like, makes implicit threats to Stalin. Oh! Um, <laughs> let's go there. Whoa! Uh, well, it's not very direct, because if she just said, I'm going to shank you, it would not end well for her. But, um... <laughs> At one point, she has a poem, Stanzas, which was written in 1940, but not published in the Soviet Union until 1989, um, which she, I'm not going to read the whole poem, but she names a lot of Russian figures um, who have lived in the Kremlin and says, you had better not live in the Kremlin. The Preobrazhensky guard was right. The germs of the ancient frenzy are still swarming here. Boris Godunov's wild fear and all the Ivan's evil spite and the pretender's arrogance instead of the people's rights. And that was directed at Stalin, who was living and working out of the Kremlin. And my favorite is that last line, which is instead of the people's rights, because she is wholly aware that the communism in her country has nothing to do with the rights of the masses and has everything to do with Stalin being in power. And she's not afraid to say that to him and tell him that your position is full of corruption and it will bring you down someday. Okay, so I have very limited understanding of communism. My, my, honestly, my, most of my experience with learning about communism is just hearing Kate rant about it. Um, but I want to, I want to make sure that I understand uh, why communism on paper works and communism with this particular uh this particular bit of history did not one of the things that is missing in russian in the russian revolution that marx says is an integral part of communism is something called a class conscious proletariat and it's a people who have become self-aware of their position in society and who elect consciously to overthrow what has come before them. And actually, communism and Marxism is supposed to come after a self-conscious socialism, which is supposed to come after the capitalist period. So it's supposed to be okay. capitalism, then socialism, then communism. And communism is not supposed to start with someone saying, hey, we should be a communist country. It's supposed to start with people en masse just moving, that away, makes sense. moving away from socialism, which is already in place. Yeah, that and makes so, sense. So Russia made the leap from, I guess, like feudalism in a way. Feudalism to industrialism, slightly dove slightly into capitalism, then and went then straight to over socialism. Went over socialism. Okay, but so the, so what I'm hearing, America's problem is that they've never gone past capitalism. Right. Russia's problem is that they skipped over socialism. Right. Um, Russia's and, problem is also. Oh, we're America's skipping over socialism too. Oh. History repeats itself. I'm kind of freaked out by that now. Hey, listeners, be scared. <laughs> um, so what happened specifically in Russia is that Lenin won the support of the Russian people by selling them communism 
but it was a propaganda instead of an actual philosophy. He was selling them the end goal of communism rather than the philosophy itself, and he didn't bother to teach them about it because they would be harder to control if they understood. Right, right. Um, anyone who's ed- educated is harder to control. Oh, yes. Uh, Asmatova is a clear example. Yeah, we talked about that last episode, too. Any, oh, yeah, anybody, Yeah, anybody who's educated is harder to control, and that because makes them... for themselves. Right, and that makes them more willing to ask for things that, that uh, their higher-ups don't want them to have. And the reason that communism also does not work, or has not, or we are not in a, has not worked yet, I doubt it will ever work, but regardless of whether I believe it will work ever, the conditions in which communism would arise out of basically any country on this planet would not lead to quote-unquote true communism. Communism works in very small groups, but it does not work on a national scale because it, it requires people to put the... It requires people to choose... a. Uh, as a whole, as a whole group, it requires people to choose, basically to share. The community. It's, it requires people. Kindergarten concept. It requires every single person to choose that. And that can't happen on a national scale because people are all different. People are all different. Also, communism is, it has two things. It is very susceptible to people who want more for themselves and mm-hmm. don't care about other people. It is very susceptible to people taking advantage of the communist system in order to better themselves. It is also uh, creates a sort of um, the pro- okay. It, I, I I worked in fast food, and fast food is communism. Uh, I, I, I the bad that. kind of communism. Kind of communism. Fast food is communism because everyone in fast food has the same job. No one will ever get promoted. You have no opportunity for advancement except maybe to a managerial state where you're overseeing other people and everyone makes the same wage. I made the same wage regardless of how many of my coworkers didn't show up on time, regardless of how many of my coworkers hung out in the back on their phone when they were supposed to be working, regardless of how many of my coworkers straight up didn't show up for work sometimes, I would be paid the same amount as them. And it's so it creates a cultural depression and a cultural um, stagnation. It creates a cultural stagnation because if you are surrounded by people who are not working to achieve something that is handed to them, and this isn't saying, I'm not saying anything about like handouts in terms of what people think things like uh, universal healthcare. I'm talking about paying someone to do a job that they are not doing. That they're refusing to do. That right. they are refusing to do. Um, being surrounded by that creates a cultural stagnation because there is no point in trying to better yourself if it won't if like, it won't get you anywhere. It, and it's not even a won't get you anywhere in a capitalist sense where if, if, if you're not trying to better, there's no point in trying to better yourself if you won't get more money. It's you could want to be a, uh, an intellectual and not do it because there's nobody to talk to about it. There's nobody to continue. There's nobody to bounce off of. There's no way to grow. And if there isn't a way to grow, you stagnate. And so the motivation for things like the space race was propaganda and nationalist mm-hmm. pride because actual motivation had been killed off by communism. For uh, an example of the opposite extreme, I, not necessarily extreme, but an example for the opposite, Kate, the household that Kate, the household that Kate and I live in would, I, I would say is, is an example of communism working correctly, mm-hmm. which is, that's so weird to say out loud, but there are how many of us? There's six of us all choosing to 
most of the time, complete our chores and keep the household running at the benefit of ourselves and everybody else in the household, you know, and nobody gets yelled at and nobody gets punished for not doing their jobs. They just, they choose to do them because it keeps, it keeps things running smoothly. And that is an example of communism working, but there are only six of us. My, my household in Texas did not work like that because yes, there were only six of us. However, oh my gosh, do I want to say this out loud? Are my parents going to listen to this podcast? My parents were dictator, dictatorial. They were, um, in, in my childhood. Um, and so it was, it was a bad example of communism. We were, and I think Stalin is communism. Yes, it, it was, it was, it was mm-hmm. just a, I, I don't even want to go into, go mm-hmm. into it, but most Communist states are dictatorial. Right. Fidel Castro because, is a perfect example. Yes, because people take advantage, like Caitlin system. just said, people take advantage of the system. There is Fidel Castro in Cuba, uh, Mao Zedong in China. Um, there are dozens of examples of communism being started by people who might have, in, in many cases, it's people who genuinely believed it, in it. But the system was taken advantage of by people who wanted power, and thus these dictators are born. Um, and on the opposite side of communism working negatively, when I spoke before about people not wanting to better, genuinely like good, intelligent people not wanting to better themselves because there's no point, there are people who would get to positions where they did not have to be good to be in that position because it was the job that was guaranteed for them. <clears throat> my, <laughs> my grandmother, my babushka, was a nurse in Russia. And she's told me stories of uh, doctors showing up to work completely smashed to do surgery, like completely drunk to do surgery. Because they're, one, they were really depressed because they were living in Soviet Russia. And two, nothing would, nothing, they wouldn't have consequences for that because they were in a position where their job was guaranteed. Going back to um, the time of Perestroika, did mm-hmm. I say that right? Yes. There's another uh, critic who um, talks about Anna Fadavati. We've kind of talked and uh, explored a little bit of the differences in Stalinistic communism versus uh, what philosophical communism is. Sarah A. Krive says, During Perestroika, Akhmarva came to be identified with Russia's resistance to the atrocities of Stalinism. She was pigeonholed by Western and emigre scholars as an internal emigre, in quotes. Akhmadova's name came to serve as shorthand for suffering and near martyrdom at the hands of Soviet authorities. And I think after reading her poetry, that's a fair assessment. And it's also something that she was forced into. I don't think she would have chosen to be pigeonholed in history the way that she was. And I hope that we're not pigeonholing her into being the Soviet Russian martyr mm-hmm. for freedom because she's more than that. Um, and she has very different sides. Um, I think we should end with the poem. Yeah, I, prom- I promised you guys a rant. Uh, I promised you guys a rant about communism. I, yeah, I episode two. You. Hello, hello, I hello. I warned you all. Uh, the poem that I wanted to say before, we're going to end with from They Will Forget. How astonishing. They Will Forget. How astonishing. They forgot me a hundred times. A hundred times I lay in the grave where, perhaps, I am today. But the muse, both deaf and blind, rotted in the ground like grain, only like the phoenix from the ashes. 
to rise into the blue ether again. Do you want to unpack that or? No, I think we should just let it sit. It's really, it's so perfect. You I can, you love... can, you can draw your own implications from that. We may, we may talk about it in a Patreon episode at some point, but. Do you want to do the sign off? Yeah. Okay. So, uh, you can, you that's, can see it that's it for Anna Madhava. Okay. We would like to thank Alan Hardison for, uh, writing and singing and recording our theme song. We would like to thank, uh, Brittany Barrel for creating our banner art. And we want to plug all of our, all of our social media. You can find us at, uh, cannonfirepodcast.com, which is, uh, our website, right. That's our website. You can find us there. You can, uh, contact us there. You can listen to our episodes there and you can view our transcripts as well as our uh, sources that we cite. Uh, you can also reach us at cannonfirepodcast at gmail.com. And our social media, you can also find us on Twitter at cannonfirepod and on Facebook and Instagram at cannonfirepodcast. So if you want to follow us on any of those, we it's my job to kind of keep those up to date. So I will do my best to do that. Um, and until next time, when we talk about uh, Chaim Potok, I guess. So uh, Just remember that Western grammar continues to be a white colonial construct. Yep, absolutely. See you guys See you. next time. <laughs> <laughs>